Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you're a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, then you are in the right place. I'm Ken Cameron. And I'm Russell Stratton. And as it's our first episode of 2024, I'd like to wish a happy new year to all of our listeners. Once again, we're speaking with ourselves today. So hooray for us. Hooray! Hooray! Bully for us! In this episode, Russell and I are going to discuss the most difficult workplace conversations that each of us has had, and we're going to talk about what we learned from those experiences. As you may recall, for every episode for the past year of 2023, and for a lot of 2022, we have been inviting our guests to share with us a little bit about themselves, but then in the second half of our podcast, we've been asking them to tell us about the most difficult workplace conversation that they've had. It could be with a boss, could be with a customer, could be with a coworker, could be with somebody who's a direct report to them. Uh, and We ask them to share that with us so that you can learn from their mistakes and hopefully their victories. But it's time for Russell and I to put ourselves in the hot seat. So we're going to each interview one another about one of our most difficult workplace conversations. And Russell, I am nominating you to go first. Okay, right. Um, I'm good to go. Ask ask away, Ken. What's What's the first question? Well, the first question is, Russell, tell us about the most difficult workplace conversation that you've had, or at least one of the most difficult workplace conversations you've had. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what happened before, and then tell us about how the conversation unfolded, and then tell us about how it resolved itself afterwards. Okay. So, um, yeah, thinking, thinking about this, probably the conversation I would think that had the most impact, and I think every conversation I've had to have is a challenging conversation, whether it's been with a coworker or one of my team or or up, up, upwards with with my boss, has always had a, um, a challenge to it and something to learn from it. But the one that had probably the biggest impact, so to our listeners, casting back their minds into the mists of time, so we're probably going back close to over 30 years ago, and I was in my what would be my second um, managerial role. Um, had been a manager for about eighteen months to two years, and I just changed teams at this point. And uh, I was doing an appraisal uh, interview with with one of my team. Now I'd done a couple of appraisals in my previous role. Um, both of the staff members were uh, what I would call a you know. Above, above average, good good employee, no problems. They were certainly weren't superstars, but they weren't any issues with them. And the appraisals were, you know, fairly straightforward. You know, went to plan, no 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 challenges really. Um, then I came into to this particular one with a, a guy that was working for me, had been working for me for about six months or so, and there were a couple of issues that had been coming up over the last uh, little while that I needed to address with him. So as we had an appraisal coming up, I thought that was a good time to have that conversation with him, uh, which I, which we, we, we did. And everything was going okay until I addressed these two issues with him and we were talking about his, you know, the impact that would have on his you know, year-end mark and um, et cetera. And at that point, uh, then he... You know, I thought he was going to take the points on view and so on, and say, "Yep, yeah, fair, fair enough." You know, I, I, I get that, and we would 
put a plan together and go forward for the next year. Um, but he didn't. He, he pushed back against it and disagreed with it and said it wasn't fair and, um, you know, I, 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 I wasn't giving him the performance mark that he was expecting, um, which I was a little bit taken aback with because we hadn't had any conversation about what his performance mark would have been up to this point. Um, and I was a little bit flustered because I wasn't expecting the pushback because what I was raising with him was something that, you know, he was aware of prior to the, to the, to the um, official appraisal. Um, so I wasn't sure why he was now saying, well, that wasn't the case and this, this isn't happening that way and it shouldn't impact his overall market. So um, I was then struggling a little bit as to well, what other evidence can I put in front of him and how could I you know, justify this and, um, asking him why he thought this way, and he just kept saying, "Well, this is not what I was I was told. It's not what I was expecting." Um, so yeah, I, I was sort of caught unawares, which is one of the things that we always say to participants in our in our workshops to try and be prepared and think about the possible, um, you know, what might happen. Um, and I certainly hadn't, so I was struggling a little bit at this point. We yeah, we often find that our participants in our workshop feel that way that they, they they come in with a plan they come in with their script but then um, they get into the conversation and somebody says something anything that they that they that is kind of off script and they don't know how to kind of proceed with that well of course when you're in these kinds of conversations the other party doesn't have a script. And so, you know, anytime that you make those plans, uh, then if you're trying to stick to those plans, then the, anything the other person says can kind of throw you off. And that's what happened to you in this instance? Yeah, it did. And, and, and because I hadn't got the, the experience or training of having, you know, done what we do with our participants in our workshop, which is give them the, you know, the improv artist who becomes that, you know, a challenging employee and, and give them an opportunity to practice so it, I, it was first time I was having to face that type of situation, and it was live with the individual there who was now saying, "You're not being fair to me. This is not what I was expecting." Um, you know, and was starting to now disagree with some of the things that had happened in the previous sort of few weeks, which previously he had been he had not disagreed with. So I was then sort of taking he was like taking a back step from it, and I was like, "Oh, I was really a little bit lost as to what as to what to do." Well, it sounds like you did a couple of things right in here. I mean, it sounds like you did a couple of things uh, according to best practices. You you had made your notes. You'd done your research. You had had a few preparatory conversations with the person over the previous six months. So the person was aware that their performance wasn't up to snuff. So there's a, there's a lot of things that shouldn't have come as a surprise to them in, in the middle of this conversation. Well, yeah, and, that, and that's that's what I what I thought, but there was a – there was a key piece of information that I wasn't aware of, um, and which which contributed contributed to this. So I, I think one of the things that I, I I learned from it was that my my preparation needed to be even better. And just because we talked about it, you know, something a month ago, didn't necessarily mean that the person was going to agree with it again a month later when the stakes were higher. Um, so I, I needed to perhaps have my my sort of evidence a little bit more, um, you know, lined up. So I got my ducks in a row, so to speak. Um, but what I didn't know is that the guy had come to work for me that year, and the organisation, just to get a bit of context for our listeners, had two markings that were given to people at the year end. 
The first was a performance marking, which was a five-box system from, like, uh, you know, walks on water at number one through to, you know, unacceptable uh, uh, at sort of box box five. But most people sat somewhere in between boxes two through to, through to four. What this guy was looking for was a box two, which was very good. Um, and what I was giving him was a box three, which was satisfactory. The second marking they had was what was called a promotability marking. So you would give an indication whether you thought the individual was ready for promotion to the next next grade. And so you either got a fitted for promotion or a not fitted for promotion. I didn't feel, based on what I'd seen from him um, to that point, that he was fitted for promotion. What I hadn't, wasn't aware of, so I was giving him, you know, just to you know, summarize, I was going to give him a satisfactory overall with a couple of issues for development that we talked about and not fitted for promotion and why I thought that. The problem was, or part of the problem was, in his previous job, his manager there had said to him when he, he that they also were not were giving him a satisfactory but not fitted for promotion. And when he challenged that and saying he thought he should have been very good and fitted for promotion, they'd said to him, well, that, yeah, you've only in your first year in the organization, this is a typical sort of mark, but next year, next year you'll get, you know, very good and fitted. Now, the problem was, of course, that next year meant they were now with me, they weren't with their previous manager. What she promised him, she'd never, certainly never said that to me, that that's what she'd promised him. Um, and so he came in with the expectation that regardless of what I'd said to him earlier in the year about his performance, where there were, you know, it wasn't bad, they were good, you know, mainly good, but there were a couple of areas that needed to improve, that um, he was going to get, you know, box two and a fitted, as he said. And that's all he kept saying. I should get a box two and a fitted. And that, that, that part of me, that is part of what took me by surprise. And then when I, said no and pushed back on that that's when we ended up with him now backtracking on some of the things that i thought we'd agreed on in previous previous meetings um, so we were a little bit of a um uh, an unpass there and, and as to where to go and at what point did you discover that the previous manager had made this uh, kind of promise that you were now um stuck with like did you discover that in the meeting or is that something you discovered like subsequent to the meeting and like the weeks that followed well, it was in the, in the meeting when I, I, I sort of at some point, um, I can't remember the exact sort of, maybe about sort of two-thirds of the way through, and I sort of said, well, look, surely, surely, we, if these are, you know, this is what we've said you do well, this is where there could be improvement, um, that, and that, that would be, because you know, I then, I'm sorry, I'd paused the meeting, I'd gone out to go and pull the, you know, the guidelines, which gave the descriptor for each of the, um, you know, marking scale, and there was a descriptor, and I looked, pointed to it like, well, "This is this this would you fall right, right within this box?" No, that's the satisfactory. You know, good, good, generally good performance, but maybe a couple of areas for improvement. You know, development. You know, here we are, and and and, and he said, "Yeah, but that's not." Our, and then he said, "But when I was working for X, and I won't name name them, this is what they told me." I was told this last year, and they told me that I was going to get So then it suddenly dawned me, oh, okay, so now you've been promised something that you're expecting 
regardless of your level of performance during the year. Um, and yeah, that that I, that sort of came to me. And again, that was a pause of okay, we're going to need to reconvene this. We can reconvene this meeting because I felt at the moment now that I, I was not getting anywhere, and I would need to reconvene it. So I we paused it. We we, we stopped. We agreed to meet the next day. I went and spoke to my manager about it, and you know, got some guidance from 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 her on to on on to you know what I should be talking about and what I what I should cover and how I could you know take it forward, which was more in line with some of the things we'd said. Well, you know, go back over the evidence that you've got and go and check what this is, and if you get a chance, speak to the previous manager and find out what they you know why they said this. Was there any other underlying factors that I wasn't aware of? All of which I did, and and then we reconvened the meeting the following day and um you know picked up where we where we left off really and how did it end up did the per- did the person end up like uh strong arming you into giving them a promotion or did the did, did they end up like quitting the organization in a fury how how did this climax <laughs> yeah, yeah um well it it, it, ended, it ended up with I, you know, I i had i the second meeting i was better prepared so the second meeting, I, I had pulled in all of the um, performance metrics that I'd been working on. So I actually physically brought them into the meeting with me. So we, we sort of start again. Let's go back to the beginning. And we went through it all. Um, and then it became a lot more difficult for him to deny some of the things that he was, he was saying. I also brought in the notes that I'd made on our previous meeting. Now, I know that I, these were things that I – should have, with hindsight, perhaps sent to him um, on what we'd agreed. But I said, look, you know, you know, so I was basically saying, are you denying that we had this conversation, which he, he wasn't, um, when I had the notes in front of me and could say, look, this is what we said three months ago. And then I, again, went through the performance ratings and asked him, you know, well, Based on this, do you think that this this is the because this is the performance rating for the next you know next band up, which you don't qualify for, um, and the promotability we talked about the jobs at the next level and, and what that would mean in that team and that he didn't have the experience or the skills for that at this point, um, and there was a little bit of a, a, a sort of a, you know mellowing on his, on on his part as well. And ultimately, I, I, I said to him, well, whatever X had promised you in the past, that's – she. I was going to say she doesn't have a right to do that, but that doesn't impact so – you're in a new job now. And I, and I, I said, I, I can't hold that on that somebody might have promised you something that they shouldn't have promised you. So I said, I understand that you're you know, angry and you're frustrated and you don't understand it. But I said, if I'm honest, uh, yes, I, I could have presented some of this information to you clearer yesterday, but if you've got a beef with someone, then actually it should be your previous manager for promising you something that they couldn't deliver on because you don't work for her anymore. And, you know, there was, there was a, a grudging acceptance from him on, on, on that. Now and so he got his box three and uh, with a distant development and a not fitted and I like to say there was a Disney ending and he, and he was he was a wonderful 
employee. He, he wasn't. He he moved on out. He moved back to the team that he worked on before. And I understand a little while later, he got that promotion. He went back to working for that manager he worked for before, and he got a promotion another year or so ago, a year or so later. Sorry, and um, I think he probably just believed that I I wasn't very nice to him, and um, she was a lot nicer to him than I was. Um, but uh, that I don't know because it was it, by that time it was like eighteen months further on. So he could have actually worked on the, the things that I'd suggested to him, which would have moved him back to where he wanted to be anyway. So you know there was probably a little bit, a little bit of both. She was he he'd done some work on it himself, and um, yeah, perhaps she was going to give him what he wanted um, when I wasn't. You know, there's a theme in here that we often talk about in our workshops that you call the slopey shoulders effect. And that's a manager who just lets thing, the responsibility fall off of their shoulders and it ends up landing on somebody else. And I, th- and I think so. And I, you know, the, the, the other manager isn't here to defend themselves. So I, I, a little, and it was from 30 years ago. So, um, uh, but I, I think there was a part in there because I did speak to her afterwards and, and said, "Look, did you?" Pro-? And, and she was like, "Yeah," because he he was he just he just wouldn't he wouldn't stop about it. So I just pro- that promised him basically you promised him that to shut him up. And again, I think you know she was suffering from a similar situation that I was. That again, she was a fairly young manager. She was fairly new in the job as I was, and. You know, he's suddenly caught a bit unawares with a, a quite assertive member of staff who is pushing for something. And whereas perhaps I was prepared to tell him no, um, she took a, a easier route and said, well, yeah, it just makes life easier if, if I sort of, you know, give him give what it wants. Uh, and that was partly down just to personality. And there seems to be another theme in here that of um, of training. Like it seems like neither you nor this other manager had the training around how to be a manager. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, the, the organization actually had a very good management training program. The problem with it was is that it didn't run as, not, um, as many courses as it should have done. Um, because they were formal courses, so I think it's well, a couple of things here. Probably one was that the, the how the training was done. So you had to go on these uh, sign up to uh, go on these courses, which were all face to face, and part of them were residential. So they weren't always as easy to get on as you could could do. Um, there wasn't like the blended learning that we have now with other options for people. And the second thing was you then had to sort of wait to get on that course. So I didn't complete the suite of courses, which included a whole course on how to do appraisals, um, until I'd been a manager for about four years. Four years? Wow. So by the time I I got to complete all of the training, I'd been doing the job for four years. So this came to me in like 18 months or so into the job, and I hadn't – yeah, yeah, there was guidelines on you know policies on how to do appraisals and how to you know, but there wasn't any practical experience of how to manage with this type of situation, which is an, well, I suppose one of the, the learning points. If I'm thinking about what did I, I learn from it, well, from the from the practical point of the conversation itself, it was you know more preparation is better than less preparation. You know, having all of those you know performance metrics to hand having the definitions of uh, the, the, the grading scales to hand, 
um, having you know maybe sort of you know checked out a little bit else about what's 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 going on. So I had the information there in case there was any pushback on the facts or the, the technical facts. Having that, um, the other thing was is, is being able to have some experience of, of how to deal with ob- objections or the or the behaviour because. You know, not as you said earlier on, Ken. You know that people don't behave in the same way that you might expect them. And you know, I have a script; they don't have the same script. Um, and just being confident to be able to roll with that a little bit more, uh, rather than have the sort of deer in the headlights, which I, I sort of had there. Um, and then part of that was about having the training, and the training being done in a way of not just on what's the policy, but the practical. Okay, let's practice having the conversation. So one of the things that, as you know, I, I've always been very keen on and has really, I suppose, shaped my career going forward and the, and the work that I do is I don't want other new managers to be in that position that I was in. Um, and that wasn't the only issue that I encountered in my first you know, couple of years of management, uh, mainly down to lack of experience and lack of training. Um, and so, you know, I could never understand why in any you know, multitude of jobs that we might have, and some of our listeners may, may you know, work in different you know, fields, you, know, you could have somebody working on the, on the oil patch here in northern Alberta. You could have somebody working as a you know, construction worker. Somebody works as a lawyer. Somebody works as an accountant, drives a city bus, whatever it might be. You wouldn't send that person out to do that job unless they had been trained and you were certified that they could do it. And yet when we come to you know, management, too often, particularly in the early stages, we, we appoint people to management roles because they're good at the job that they do. Hey, you're a really good accountant. Why don't you manage these accountants? You're a really good construction worker. Now you're the foreman of these construction workers. And don't necessarily provide people with the skills and the training that they, they need. Um, and you know, I've often come across over the last you know, 30 years since I've been working in this area, um, where people will say, "No, well, this is the first management training I've had." No, again, similar to me, they've been in the job for five years. Now, you know, a lot of our clients, as you know, that we work with, Ken, um, are more proactive than that, and are looking to get their ma- their you know foremen, supervisors, and managers uh, trained earlier. Um, but I think we're doing people a disservice if we don't prepare them with the ground, you know, the the, the baseline skills which one of them is how to deal with difficult conversations um either before they take up the job or immediately they have taken up the job because otherwise they're they're potentially going to struggle in the same way that i did yeah yeah i think that seems to be a recurring theme in all of the workshops that we encounter that and also the recurring theme of the notion that like i've got my script and the other person isn't playing along because they don't have a script and they don't feel obligated to do a script or as you know there's a great quote from the boxer mike tyson which uh, is that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face <laughs> and it kind of feels like that sometimes when you go into these conversations, you're like, I know what I'm going to say. I got my 10 points. And then, you know, you, you get through point number one and then the, uh, the opponent, like, you know, um, hopefully not actually, but perhaps like, you know, verbally kind of like throws your plan out the window, punches you in the face. And now you're like, oh, wait, what's happening with my plan? What am I going to do? And that seems to be something that happens all too often. So it's really, and it's something that people say, well, it only comes with experience. 
But as so many of our guests have said, you know, there's an opportunity to gain that experience in a safe environment just through practicing, through role play, through the workshops that we do or other things. As one of our guests said, you know, hopefully you actually don't have the skills to deal with difficult conversations with difficult people because hopefully in your workplace, you don't have difficult conversations with difficult people every single day. So hopefully you're not skilled at it. And hopefully you actually need to take some time to practice those skills because, you know, you don't have to do it every day with every single one of your employees well that, that's 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 true ken and I, and I think this is why you know i've been a big advocate of using simulation as part of a training and why the work that you and i do together with our clients is using professional improv artists as many of our listeners will know to um simulate the type of challenges that um our supervisors and managers would face so that they can practice in a safe environment um, using our forum theater approach that if somebody you know gets stuck like i was at their meeting they can just turn to the group and time out and we can brainstorm ideas to help them and then we can rewind and they can try it again um, but the real per the actual real person isn't there um, who's potentially going to go off and complain to the union or put a complaint in them to hr they can try different things and so i think that simulation for doing you know, not just difficult conversations, there's many things that we can do it with, is a vital part of people's training um, because it's the opportunity to give people some experience, but as you say, in a sort of safe and controlled environment where they can be coached through it um, before they go and do it for real. Um, as, as you know, some of my previous work was with, with, with a lot of sort of military and ex-military personnel. Um, so it's one of those uh, folks said to me, you know, when they were talking about, well, you know, why do you have simulations on the military and, you know, emergency services and things like this, do a lot of simulation as part of their training. And he said, well, you don't want people to actually die for real um, because you've screwed up. If you can simulate the situation, and then you say, well, that bad decision or that approach would have cost lives. In the simulation, those individuals can get up off the ground, dust themselves off, and you can run through it again. But if you're for real, um, they're dead or wounded, and you've now got to learn from there. So I think the, you know, the benefit of getting experience through simulation um, is, is fantastic and great for people because the stakes are a lot lower than when it's happening for real. Now, for most of us, we're not in those sort of combat situations where our decisions or actions cause a loss of life, but um, it's still a, the principle still applies. If we can simulate and people can practice, then if they get it wrong, they can try again, dust themselves off, and it's nothing. only their ego gets bruised, which is one of the things I, I say to our participants. You know, The worst thing that happens to you today is that your ego might get bruised. Um, but you can then try it again and i'm sure there's a couple of listeners out there right now who are like saying yeah hopefully nobody dies but you haven't been to my workplace so uh, <laughs> they they may feel that way who knows but right now we're just getting up to the time where it's time for us to take a short intermission break here for a moment but when we come back from our advert break we're going to flip the conversation and it's going to be my turn to talk about the most difficult workplace conversation that i've had and how i dealt with it we'll be back in a flash Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, 
he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. And agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And, and what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real-life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker Steven and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need To Effing Talk To You podcast. Today, we are speaking with ourselves, and it's an opportunity for me to flip the tables on my co-host, Ken. I've stoked the fire, Ken. I'm about to hold your feet to it. Uh, tell us about the most difficult conversation that you've had and what do you learn from it? Well, I, I'm really lucky here in that, you know, not only did you uh, stoke the fires, and but I also stretched that out as long as possible so that we've got less time for me to go through my story. So I get the, uh, the uh, what one might say, the short end of the stick or what somebody else might say is like, oh, good, I don't have to talk as long. So, you know, my story actually has some similar themes to yours. And some of those themes are around um, being younger, around being um, less prepared about and, and about training. So we'll kind of tease out some of those themes. But here's the story. This story goes back probably around um, maybe 12 years ago. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to know better. I'm in my late 30s and I'm running a nonprofit organization. I'm relatively new to the role. And there's two of us actually who are running the nonprofit organization. And we have two kind of co-executive roles. So we're kind of power sharing this. And my colleague and I are working together. We're relatively new in the organization. And there's another member of the senior staff. So let's call, um, let's call my colleague like person A, and let's call this other senior member of the staff person B. Now, person B had, had, um, been in the organization before we were. So this person had been along with the organization. They had developed a program that was their program that they were very married to. They'd been doing it regularly. It had been very successful. We're coming into the organization. It's a relatively young nonprofit organization. And, you know, it's our turn to kind of make some changes and to kind of let things grow. And I should caveat by saying that we're actually not in a phase where we're changing anything really particularly much. We're, we're, we're eager to grow things, but we're not making any wholesale changes at all. But after about six months in this job, I get a phone call from my colleague, person A, who says that, you know, I'm having issues with person B. 
Person B, who's predated us in the organization and has been running this particular program, Person B is regularly rude to me, says Person A. Um, you know, often Kurt always takes a superior attitude, is a bit of a know-it-all, and it's just getting to be too much. And I'm going to ask you to have a talk with this other person. And I, or, or, or send an email to this other person, just bring it up and address the issue. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm going to have to step in here and be a leader and step up into this space and just kind of set the tone about how we should be behaving with one another. Now, keep the timeline in mind. This was maybe like, this was 12 years ago, maybe even 14 years ago. So this is pre-Zoom, certainly pre-pandemic, but it's also pre-Zoom, um, pre-online conversations. So we're, we have a remote team. We're on opposite sides of the country. And we don't have a lot of the communication tools that we're so used to using now and that are so embedded in our work, particularly our work with remote teams. So just for context, like at this point, Skype has just been introduced to the world, but it's not particularly common, right? Um, I would even go so far as to say, like, at, at this point, I got my first iPhone while I was on this job. So I don't even think that that original iPhone had FaceTime on it. So there, there, let's just say that there isn't an option to do any kind of online call. So there are really only two options here are pick up the telephone, like an old fashioned telephone, and dial a person, or write an email to the person. So we're not so far back in the midst of time that we'd be using snail mail, but um, we you know, definitely have access to email. But we uh, we're, we're not going to be doing this as a as a, as an as an online call. So that's kind of a little bit of the context about what what we're um, setting the stage for. Okay, so that's given us the context behind it, and I can also imagine that some of our listeners hearing that when we were saying we were you know not having some of the tools at our disposal, some. Uh, Warning signs, warning signs coming up. So let's get into the conversation then, Ken. So what, what happened? Well, I think that's, that's the first thing, is that the first mistake I did is that it wasn't a conversation. So I, rather than picking up the telephone and talking to this person, I decided to put it all out in the form of an email. Because then I could organize my thoughts and I could say my piece. And then they could respond. But I didn't do it as a conversation. And it really was like a one-way statement rather than engaging the other person in a dialogue. So I think that was, that was definitely the first mistake that I made was that I com carefully composed and articulated an email. And I would also say that I had somebody else look at the email to make sure that it was clear and that it wasn't like overly triggering, that I was identifying, you know, what the issues might have been and what the future behavior that I would like the person to look forward to or, or, or sorry, that I would look forward to seeing from the other person. And then I sent that and I made sure that it was, you know, like carefully crafted. And then I sent it off and, you know, inviting a reply. So that was kind of what I did during the conversation. And it had the exact opposite impact that I'd intended and that I'd hoped for. In that the other person they sent the email to, person B, ended up actually she did, this person didn't reply. Um, they you know kind of you know behavior didn't really change. And about like two months later, the person left the organization and moved on to a different job elsewhere. A very similar job elsewhere at a different nonprofit organization, um, working on a um, very similar program. And this person was a great loss to this organization. They were well-respected. They had a great history in the industry. Um, and so it was really a great loss. And it also came as a, as a surprise. And I knew immediately that it was because of the email that I'd sent. And it was because of the fact that I had sent it as an email and not as a, not as a conversation. 
Okay, so a couple of things perhaps to unpick there. And you might have, when you said sent an email, heard that sort of thud noise as, as some of our listeners fell to the floor at the, the thought of what was what was going to happen if you sent this email. Um, but I'd like to clarify something with you. So you say sent the email and you and you you know and I've I've read a lot of how you write Ken so I know that it would have been in a, a you know, as 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 good an email as it could be and you checked it uh, had a colleague have a look through it as well um, but you didn't get you know the risk the response you were looking for you said the person left now was that the person who had initially come to you sort of saying. Um, can you intervene for me? Was that the person that left, or was it the person that you sent the email to saying you need to do things differently? No, I apologize that I wasn't clear. It was the it was person B, the person who I had sent the email to saying you need to do things differently because you're being rude and um, and, and a bit uh, uh, a, a bit superior sounding to person A. So I'd uh, I'd, I'd uh, I wasn't clear to that in the story. Okay, so so when you sent them this email, their response is basically didn't reply to it, and then they then they just left. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And initially there wasn't a reply, and I was like, okay, I wonder when there's going to be a reply. I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall, and then we, you know, there wasn't another conference call, and everything kind of seemed to be moving along okay. But then that then that person left, and you know, now a wise manager or a more experienced manager or a better trained manager or leader would have understood that hmm, this topic has not arisen again. No one's responded to that email, and like would have said, do you have a response to that email? How is that landing with you? I didn't do those things. I was one of those leaders who. Went, okay, well, I, I got to say my piece and um, now nobody's talking about it anymore. And that's a good thing. Let's just bury that under the rug and move on. So, and that was one of those mistakes. Instead of uh, the other person, person B, moving on, person B just, you know, kind of per, uh, either let it fester or immediately started looking for another job one or the other. And it, uh, and had I been the kind of leader who had followed up or had I been the kind of leader who did this as a telephone conversation, we would have had a different response. So um, we're, I'm going to offer you the same opportunity we do to our participants in our workshops in that you can have a do-over. Now, we're not going to reenact that conversation, but if you were in that situation again, what would be your approach this time based on what you know um, and your experience, experiences and knowledge at, at this current point in time. So if you were going to approach it differently, what would you do this time? I think there's probably three things that I would have done. The first I've already hinted at is that I would not have done it as an email. So I would have done it as a either a conversation that we could do on like a three-way conference, uh, telephone, or I would have done it as a face-to-face meeting the next time that the three of us were in the same city. Now, given that all three of us lived in different cities, it was unlikely we'd be getting to that point anytime soon. So it was would have been way better for us to do it as a, as a conference call. Even if we couldn't really see each other's faces or read each other's expressions, that still would have been, in my mind, preferable to sending an email. That's the first thing I, that uh, the first thing I've already hinted at. But even before doing that, I probably would uh, should have um, done a little bit more investigation, as you described in your story. It would have been more important to find out more information. In particular, it would have been more helpful to find out more information from person B before moving on. Because all I really had to go on was that I was taking the word of person A at face value. 
as it turned out, when I talk a little, I'll, I'll kind of put an epilogue to the story a little bit later, but I'll leave this as a little bit of uh, a little bit of foreshadowing. There was some information in here that I wasn't aware of, or that uh, there was a pattern of behavior here that I wasn't registering that would come out later. Then the and and then the the in in building on both of those two things, I think I would have I sh- would have could have should have taken an entirely different attitude to it. What I was trying to do was I was intervening. I was trying to be a leader who would step in and solve the problem and intervene and say, hey, this behavior isn't acceptable. This is, this is what is acceptable. This should happen. And that shouldn't happen. And I think now, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of experience, with the benefit of some of the training that I've watched you lead, Russell, I think I would go into this situation instead with the intention to mediate between person A and person B, rather than to intervene between person A and person B. I think there's a big difference between those two stances. Yeah, that's a great point, Ken, because I think, you know, as you two, one is, you know, did you check out the information uh, to get the full story? Um, there is a temptation, and we, you know, as we've illustrated, we've all done it, where we, we, we want to act, and so we, we act on, you know, the information we're giving at the time. Perhaps there's a chance for a little bit more research to make sure we got the full story or both sides of the story. Um, obviously, the elements that you touched on, on regarding, um, the face-to-face meeting being preferable or a you know, conference call based on with the technology that was available to you at the time would be preferable than just the email, which can so often be misinterpreted or you can't clarify and see how it's landing with people, can't you, can you? Because you're not getting any necessary, getting any clues from their you know, demeanor. Um, but I, I also think it's important what you were saying there about that, you know, the difference between the mediation and in, intervening um, and agree, perhaps, that the more effective approach would have been to act as a um, a coach like you've often done with our participants, actually, and, and coach them through how to have that conversation with each other rather than, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump, jump in. And uh, um, that may have been more effective in, in that situation. And I think sometimes there is a, a desire as a you know leader and manager, particularly if we're newer, that we we have to feel that we have to solve things. You know, manager's hero, I call it. There's a problem. I need to solve it, and everyone can say, "Great, what a great great leader you are." And that, but perhaps the uh, the coach or mediator approach would have been um, the appropriate one to use. That's exactly what was going on. There was a kind of a weird mix of leader is hero because I wanted to like, you know, leap in and solve the problem and intervene. But there was also kind of the other flip side going on. At the same time, I was avoiding conflict. I I didn't want to be having the conversation. I wanted to do it as an email so uh, that I wouldn't actually have to be like in the middle of the conversation in that heated energy in that emotional strife so there was definitely kind of like two kind of almost contradictory impulses at work at the same time I can definitely 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 see that Ken I I, and I think this is a problem that with technology doesn't actually always solve for us but can sometimes compound it because when you're talking about like most people um, don't like conflict and they would try to prefer to not have conflict um and sometimes the uh technology that's available to us now so not just email but we can text people or we can you know we can snapchat them or we can do any other sort of form of messaging that doesn't involve us having the conversation and i think it's that conversation piece that we need to have rather than i can get the message across i can send you a text send you an email you write you a letter even <laughs> um, and tell you what the but 
that's it's one way and you said that early on you know that's just a one-way communication whereas the conversation allows us to you know exchange ideas and to build upon it and to delve a little bit deeper so i i think if it was a, a piece of advice to uh our listeners on here is that whilst you might be tempted to avoid, want to avoid confrontation we don't want to avoid the conversation because ultimately that can lead to stopping us having uh, more problems down the track yeah absolutely now i did promise an epilogue to our listeners here and here it is here's the epilogue as the years progressed i discovered that um it, it wasn't just that person a had this issue with person b it's that person a then had this issue with somebody else let's call them person c and then before long person a had this issue with person d and then again person a had this issue now suddenly with person f and so i realized what's the common denominator here i realized too late what's the common denominator here and by the time i realized that there was a common denominator, I, suddenly I'm the one that now person A has the problem with. And by that point, I'd been in the job for a little bit of time. Uh, it was taking a toll. There's a lot of, uh, you know, long distance team is a really hard thing to run, especially in a nonprofit organization. And at that point, it was just time for me to leave. So I'm the one that ended up leaving. And the, but it was so interesting how it seemed that person A always had an issue with somebody. And it was one of those things where like, there's always a drama with someone somewhere. And somehow we had fallen into this habit now that I'm the one that needs to solve that issue. I'm the one that needs to intervene because I've done it once. So now it's always going to be my responsibility moving forward. And also would seem there, Ken, that, that, that you ran out of people for person A to have an argument with, apart from now, they had the issue with you. And it was sort of the last one, last, last man standing. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, whereas if you'd been able to flip it earlier on and perhaps had been able to deal with it in a different way, it may not have come to that. But uh, not an unusual perhaps. situation. Perhaps. Not, not an unusual situation. I, and I, I've sort of faced that before, and I'm sure many of our listeners have, that you know, where we think there's an issue between employees um, and then we look at that common denominator and is it the same person that has this issue with different people all the time? And you sort of go, there's a bit of a pattern coming here, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that does seem to happen. And then I think the other theme that really connects our two stories together is one of training. And one of the fact that we don't train people to be managers. And now, as, as many of our listeners will know, I have a background in the arts, as well as in the social service industry, as well as now in the kind of the corporate world, kind of I've got three legs of a three legged stool now. And one of the things I've learned is that I, in all of those industries, the arts tend to be really uh, have an issue with a lot of that training because uh, part of it is because, you know, somebody will work as an artist and then part time as uh, in the, an administrative context and they'll go from gig to gig to gig. So these arts organizations, they're unwilling to invest in training their managers or leaders because there's such a high turnover often. And then, but also because there's just, you know, lack of resources is the third thing. And so they really do fall into the habit of the fact that people are not well trained or properly trained to be leaders, people leaders in that sense. And I find that that often happens in the arts. And I'm really hoping that it has changed in the years since because there's, now there's been so much information in there out there about leadership and about leadership skills and around leadership training. Well, let's, let's hope that's the case, Ken. And, uh, and I think, you know, there are a number of options now open to people, aren't they, in terms of the blended learning, uh, online, micro learning, you know, the shorter you know, lunch lunchbox talk type sessions, of which, uh, of which we do 
know, all of all of those options for people. And anyone who's looking for training, they can, of course, approach you and I, and we would be more than happy to assist their organisation on that front. Um, but before we go, let's uh, have a look at that last question that we always ask our uh, guests. So we'll ask ourselves of that, and that is, uh, what you're doing at the moment that people should effing care about? So, uh, Ken, what's what's going on at the moment for 2024? Well, Russell, there's something that the two of us are working on that I think we should tell our listeners about, and that's that we have been invited to collaborate on a new book about organizational culture. So there's a, a book that some of our colleagues are putting together, and it's a bit of an anthology book. So there are a number of leaders uh, contributing different ideas in the forms of different chapters to this book around organizational culture. We've been invited to contribute a chapter, and so we will be working on that um, as we speak, really, by the time this, this episode is broadcast. And we'll be um, inviting our listeners to keep an eye out for that probably in the late spring or early summer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be be great. It's a good opportunity to uh, um, you know, contribute something with, as you say, a wide group of, of business leaders who've got uh, something to say and something to offer. So it's, you know, it's really nice that we were asked to um, take part. And, and no doubt in uh, future episodes, we will be letting our listeners know um, when they can expect to see that hit the bookshelves or the Amazon marketplace so that they can uh, rush and go and uh, part with their hard-earned cash to get a copy. And so that brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you, Russell, for being such a great guest. Been great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ken, for being such a great guest as well, and being on the podcast. It's a real pleasure being here with you. Thank you, listener, for joining us. Be sure to share the link with this podcast with your friends and colleagues, and we'll be back with you again soon.